Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So buckle up, church nerds. We're back at it for week two <laughs> in our series about church denominations and um, why they are beneficial and possibly why they aren't beneficial. We spent last week covering a whole slew of history uh, for how we went from the Jesus, Jesus movement with Jesus and the 12 disciples in the early church to kind of how we got to the denominations that we're at today and in all the all the messiness that kind of went with that uh so steve where are we taking this particular episode today so so last week it, it felt to me like we uh had a messy in a good way conversation in that we talked kind of about both the history and then also the some of the pros and cons or places where we'll have to look at pros and cons about living in a world where the church this body of people who name something about Jesus in particular is fractured into a bunch of different ways. And over coming episodes, we're going to spend different time focusing on different parts of that. Some of the good, some of the bad, that kind of thing. And we thought it would be helpful maybe to ask, I mean, here we are three people who, despite all the things that are rotten about it, have still decided to be a part of traditions that have denominations. Those might change and those might have different uh, shapes over the course of uh, the long run of history. But none of us have decided to become um, like, uh, monks in a cave, uh, like the, the old desert fathers, none of us have decided to start our own um, non-denominational congregation centered around us individually. So what, what is it about these, these things called denominations, the particular traditions we come from that are helpful or worth holding on to? And um, one thing that maybe is a, is a helpful place to start is to say, these bodies embody a particular tradition, a way of being Christian, um, and that you can hold on to what's good in a way of being Christian without necessarily burning everybody at the stake, but finding that how do we pass along what's good to others in not only future leaders, but future congregations? How do we carry on what's good? Um, in some ways, this whole conversation reminds me of um, a bad joke from uh, the, I first heard at the end of the movie Annie Hall. I think we might have talked about this before, but it seems really helpful for me to talk about with uh, church denominations. And the joke goes like the guy goes to the psychiatrist and says, Doc, I don't know what to do about my wife. She thinks he's a chicken. And the psychiatrist says, have you thought about having her committed? And he says, I would, but I need the eggs. Um, and Woody Allen in the movie goes like, this is us in relationships. Is like, Why do we continue in relationships with other people? We're messy and difficult. And, and he goes, we keep at it because we need the eggs. That there's something impossibly that we get from being in relationship with other people that is impossible to get in any other way, even if it all sounds like nonsense and it's really frustrating. And I guess I think in some ways, the structures that we live in, church denominations, offer something in continuity um, that we can't get in other ways if we just sort of went solo and said, it's just going to be me and my Bible or me and my local congregation. And a big piece of that is that we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel every year, every generation, starting at what is the Christian faith, but we start with, here's what other people who've come before us have held on to were important. Here are some conversations they've had. We don't have to start all over again. We can learn from them rather than thinking we've got to come up with all this from scratch all over again. In a, in a corporate sense, there's a lot of positives then that denominational structures can offer churches and leaders as far as how we get new leaders, how we teach leaders how to be leaders, how we decide who's good and, and appropriate and gifted for leadership and who maybe doesn't have those gifts. 
So in my role as an interim consultant, um, many congregations who their pastor has left or retired or whatever, that is the moment that they have their mo- the most interaction with the actual denomination, right? Like that is the moment that they are in closest relationship to the denomination is when they're in that transition and getting ready to have a new pastor. And so even though they might interact and connect with the wider denomination at other points in their ministry, for the most part, the congregation is pretty like inward focused. Mm -hmm. Um, But here's this moment that they're cracked open, their leadership is gone, there's a vacuum, and they start looking outward and they connect with the wider denomination. And as a result, if you ask most congregation members, not necessarily like lay leadership, but like just the average person sitting in the pew, why do you have a denomination? What's the main reason? And the main reason that they'll usually list is they're who we go to to get a pastor, Mm. right? Like that's where you go to get a pastor. The denomination is who is in charge of the seminaries and who will train your pastor and will then help you get a pastor when it is time to get a pastor. And so like that is their main view of the denomination, right, is that's where we get pastors. Mm-hmm. And if that's if that's true, if there's something that's, that's on target about that, then, yeah, that's an important role for and not just for the bureaucracy of where the clearinghouse where names and resumes come but also that's involved in forming who will be future leaders and how do we offer accountability for those leaders. That's really important because to be honest, in uh, congregational life, and I I would imagine each of you might have your own experience with the challenges here, I'll at least speak for myself here. Um, When you are in a congregation, especially as say a solo pastor and there's not another staff of other pastors with you, accountability can be weird and you either have to structure it yourself or you need people outside yourself. And in a congregation, you can certainly raise up leaders and say, help, help hold me accountable, help, you know, keep me active in my own, uh, you know, spiritual life or help me not to get sloppy or things like that. It's weird in one way when that's members of your congregation, because they are also people who are indirectly responsible for paying your paycheck. And then there's the, am I just doing what other people want me to do? Um, and it's real easy to become sort of, I'm the boss and sort of that, the, in Lutheran traditions, we talk about that hair pastor model where the pastor is like the dictator or the pharaoh of the whole congregation and everything the pastor wants happens. Um, and that can be a danger as well. You need some kind of a structure to remind you if you are the pastor that you don't make judgment calls just on your whims but that you were bound to something bigger than yourself and that jesus is your lord even though on any given sunday there's nobody else who like outranks you (laughs) we have this conversation with my kids from time to time who will ask me because they they get what it's like that my wife who's a teacher there's a structure they can see well the person in charge of the school is the principal and in charge of the principal there's a superintendent and then there's also a school board they can sort of see those people and they will ask me things like who is your boss dad um and there are times when i want to playfully kind of answer well god i like i'm supposed to be responsible to god and that's fair but that also could be kind of a um cop out kind of an answer too. And sometimes I'm going to say, well, I have a responsibility to the leaders in the congregations. Um, and I then also have a responsibility to the 
the people around, but to the wider church as well. And they, that's how they maybe understand what it means when I talk about talking to a bishop or something like that, or having a meeting or something like that. Um, but that we need some kind of a way, whatever the structure is, to keep us accountable in the different areas of our work life. That's one of the, I think one of the beauties of my denomination is that, yes, I have church leaders, you know, that hold me responsible, like staff parish and church councils and things, but then we have district superintendents who are like my most immediate boss. Um, and then I, then I'm underneath the bishop. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if I have an issue with another pastor, especially if they're in my district, or if I have an issue with my congregation, even I can go to my district superintendent and be like, Hey, I need help with this. You know, I, I need advice. I need somebody to, to kind of help me work this out. Um, but then if I have an issue with my superintendent then I can go to my Bishop and say, Hey, we're having this issue. Can you help us work this out? Right. Um, and so in that sense, you know, if I had kids, Steve, then it would be almost like that principal and superintendent yeah. that they see in the school system we have that um, it's just a superintendent and then a bishop yeah. who hold us accountable. And our, our polity is similar, even though the names and the, the exact details of the job description are different. But in the Lutheran polity, there is that same kind of a, a leadership, whether it's more locally a dean of your conference and then a, a bishop of a synod and then presiding bishops and well as our churchwide assembly. So there, there's, there are similar kinds of structures. In a, in a way, this feels to me like answering a question you raised really helpfully in our last episode, looking at the history of, of how, how we got here. And you pointed out, like, how did we get to a place where there's, there's all this structure um, where we can fight over power? And like, that's a good question, especially to somebody who has not grown up in the church. It sure looks like sometimes all Christians ever do in the church is fight over who has power, whether it's something piddling like what color the carpet is or how many sacraments there are or whether we should have a crusade or not. Um, But I get that. But on the other hand, you need some kind of a structure to deal with the times we don't agree. And one way of doing that is to say, well, who will help adjudicate? Who will decide when there's a conflict? Who will help mediate and walk you through? And if that person, you feel like they made a mistake, is there someone you can appeal to? Is there someone who oversees even further? That it's hard to imagine any institution not having some kind of a structure like that, even if the details are different in exactly how it works out. I would say maybe the example, the counter example that comes to mind is that when you think about what happens in a Quaker tradition, where, you know, like, we just sit around in a meeting house and wait for somebody to speak, and we all have to make decisions by consensus. And there's something beautiful, everybody in the room can all agree, here's exactly what we should do. But that also seems like there's plenty of ways that could just be sort of uh, there could be shadow politics behind the scenes that we do all our wheeling and dealing before we get in the room uh, and we just don't see how the sausage is made kind of a thing. Um, that there's going to be some way we need to have people in place whose job is to help us where the buck stops, basically. So part of what that looks like in different traditions uh, is some kind of structure, whether it's committees or people, or even a book of confessions that helps a denomination carry on like the essential of its core identity. So Lutherans are famous for, we have a book of confessions. Um, Not everybody has read many of the confessions, but we are probably aware they exist. Um, And so part of that formation is here are some things that are essential about our way of following Jesus. We make sure that we train pastors who will then train the people in their congregations. Here are some important essential things. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every day, every Sunday, every year. Um, 
but there's more to being in denomination than just having people who are like liturgical gatekeepers or, or who are making sure everybody has orthodox theology. There's more to it than just that. What else do you see as the role for church denominations in helping form leaders? Are you talking about uh, theological like seminary education or like beyond that for like lay leaders? I guess I think like sometimes people assume the, the job of the pastor is just to know theology and to be the one person who knows the theology in their church um, uh, or that they're the one who's supposed to have the right answers that you come to. Um, and again, I'm not denying that, um, but I would imagine both of you have experienced as well that pastoral leadership often looks like a whole lot more than just tell us what the orthodox answer is to this question and it has to do with leadership right. and how you call. So those aren't things that you're necessarily inherently good at. I, I, I guess, do you see that as a role for denominations in the training of the parts that aren't just theology, memorize these things about correct theology, but like how, how did denominations help in that piece of formation of leaders? Yeah. Um, so again, this is just my experience being in the Lutheran church, but um in, in the ELCA specifically, um, the way that my denomination helped was making sure that there were plenty of safe places for me to be a student outside of the classroom. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, even way back in undergrad, I had an internship at a local ELCA congregation where I was their youth director um, and I got paid hardly anything but it was a space for me to both see what a pastor did on a day-to-day -day basis um, as well as gave me lots of opportunities to be his assisting minister and to have a role in worship leadership um, as well as you know bonus I did stuff with their high school youth group which looking back at it seemed silly because I was like two years older than <laughs> some of those kids and I was in charge of them and I was like the only adult. And like, now it's like, what were they thinking? Like <laughs> I was their age. I, why did they put me in charge of this? But it was a safe space for me to do that. There was a pastor there overseeing me and making sure I didn't mess up in a way, in such a big way that it was irredeemable. Um, and then later on, I was a ministry and contact student where I was basically doing the same thing, but in seminary. So they let me teach classes and preach occasionally. Um, and then I was a student pastor. I was an intern for a year, um, you know, but it, it was they kept putting me in churches with a supervisor to help me grow as a leader, to have somebody be able to watch me and go, hey, I noticed that you seemed really nervous doing this part of leadership. Let's figure out what's making you nervous and let's figure out a way to help you overcome that so that you bec become a better public speaker, so that you become a better um, person who can lead a committee meeting, so that you can become a better leader in the ways that you specifically need practice and a place to just, you know, become a leader. Yeah. I think about the part that was, I, I know is at least a part of our education and maybe it was for you as well, Erica, doing a unit of CPE of clinical pastoral education. So, yeah, it wasn't necessarily required, but I did partake in that. And that was huge yeah. for my growth in my pastoral ministry, because I'll be honest, before 
I did CPE. I was terrified to go into hospitals mm-hmm. um, and to deal with people hooked up to machines and, and dying and things like that. And um, I, there was so much growth that happened this summer that I did CPE. Um, and it was a large trauma one center, you know, so there was times I had the pager. I was on call for the whole hospital. I worked on an oncology floor and just a recovery floor from general surgery. And so now I can walk into a hospital room with anyone going through anything connected to any number of machines and be like, I'm cool. I'm like, I'm comfortable in that situation and I'm not freaking out internally or externally when the parishioner's family may or may or may not be freaking out internally or externally. Like I'm that calming presence now. That that piece that you just named is so, so helpful and so important, I think. And I think it's, again, one of those things that many folks don't even recognize as a part of what good leadership in, in particular a church, but a, a, an organization is, is that ability to be a non-anxious presence. And that doesn't, you don't, you don't care about things, but that you can be in the room when everybody else is losing their mind and to be a voice that helps ground people. And okay, we're going to get through this, how we're going to do this. And that's, to me, that seems like that's something that is needed in leaders, regardless of the particularities of your uh, your yeah. tradition of your denomination's theology. So Baptists need people who can be a non-anxious presence, like Presbyterians, like Quakers, like Roman Catholics, like Orthodox priests. They, their traditions may or may not um, value that or, or teach it the same way. There might be different expressions of it. But that, to me, feels like that's a really important part of being a leader and that to be a pastor isn't just to be someone who's read a lot of theology books, as nerdy as I might think that's a fun thing to do, uh, but that it's about how you are with people. And in meetings, it's not just I have memorized our constitution, but how do you bring forth answers from the person who's being quiet and feel like they got something to say? How do you help draw and shape other leaders in the congregation? Those are all important parts of it. And without some kind of a structure to teach and train people to be good leaders, every church then is left to figure that out for themselves. And some, yeah. some places might do that well by accident. Some might stumble into a good method for it, but it feels to me like part of how denominations work is again, to help churches not have to reinvent the wheel and start over again, every generation. Well, what is it we believe and how do we get a leader? Like th- these are ways of carrying on what's important and what previous people have come before said, this is important. Uh, hold on to this rather than um, making them figure it out for themselves all over again. A system that we have in the Methodist church, we call it lay servant ministry school. And when I was on the Indiana district, I co-chaired it. I am teaching here shortly um, on the Johnstown district for it. And I've taught in every district I've served in. And like in, in our denomination, not to say that this isn't important in all of them, but with pastors being itinerant in our system, it's really important to build up your lay leadership in the church so that they can run things um, and keep that continuity from pastor to pastor. And um, those classes, you know, sometimes teach people how to preach, teach them how to to lead prayer and worship, um, teach them how to lead Bible studies, all those kind of things. And um, honestly, that's how I got started in ministry. It's kind of like, Sarah, you getting thrown into running the youth group. I, my best friend dragged me to these classes and said, hey, are you going to go take the basic course where they learn the basics of like Methodism? And then I went and did a preaching course. And so I got to preach in front of a small classroom of people 
well before I ever got to preach in front of our congregation. Um, and I always warn my students, hey, this is how I started and look where I am now. Um, that's not the goal of these classes. It's not to turn these folks into future pastors. If that happens, great and wonderful, but it's to give them those skills that they need to be good leaders in their churches. And so I am excited to once again, get to, an opportunity to, to teach some of those courses um, because I really want to see the lady of my churches and the churches surrounding me um, being able to step up into roles um, that they are, that they feel well equipped to do so that their pastor can maybe do other things um, that only a pastor can do. And I think that's a, such an important part of uh, a role of the denomination is that if it was a single congregation that recognized that they had these lay leaders that were not necessarily called to become a pastor, but called to do something in the church, you might not have enough lay leaders at any given point to have those classes. And so by being giving that role to the denomination to train up these leaders, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to have a larger class. Because yeah. if you are a student of like two students taking a preaching class, you know, that's not going to give those two students a lot of good practice just preaching in front of each other, like Mm-hmm. A room full of two people, you know, the other student and the teacher is going to have a completely different feel than preaching to a room of 15 or 50, you know, however many yeah. people are in the class, like, you know, to practice preaching in that classroom setting, you need an audience, you can't just do it to two people. So it's, it's good when the denomination can take over that aspect of teaching mm-hmm. laity because you're going to be able to get more people together. And it's not just the matter of preaching in front of a larger group than just to hit, you know, two folks or, or more, but it's also the feedback that you get, you know, when you're only preaching to two people, well, first off, you're only preaching to two people, that's a little bit easier <laughs> than talking to a group of 50, but then you're only getting the feedback from two people, mm-hmm. um, which is any feedback is good, but the more people you, you can get feedback from, then the more you can hone your skills and people will pick out different things or encourage you in different ways right. and say, you know what, right. I really like this and I really like that. And maybe those were things you thought were maybe um, not as strong as points in your sermon, but yet you realize, oh, this really hit this person. Okay, yeah. that's cool. It seems to me, too, that part of what these structures and our traditions do for us is they prevent the dangers that can come up from anybody being isolated and alone in a, in a congregational setting. And I guess I could see uh, individual leader like getting burned out being one of those possibilities, but also the opposite of them sort of becoming the dictator of uh, I'm the only one or like their own personal theological quirks making it almost like a cult kind of mentality of uh nobody is and we talked about this last time that there's the danger when you get groups that split off of saying nobody's ever had it right until me um and denominations can do that but certainly that can happen with individuals who send up almost sort of in cult figure kind of status of i'm not just a wesleyan but i'm this kind of wesleyan and i'm you know like you get and like everybody else had it wrong except for me or i'm not just a lutheran i'm this kind of lutheran and everybody else is wrong like 
if you are in a congregational setting with people who look up to you as a leader and now your particular quirks or your particular, you know, the, the things that others would say are not are, we can disagree about this, but like, no, this is one that we all must agree on. That can become really, really dangerous. And that's often how cult leaders or, or denominations that verge into cult territory happen when one person without accountability from other people saying, no, hold on, that's not the big deal you think it is or that kind of thing. And I know when I was going through my candidacy process and going through seminary and talking to other people and talking to friends that are going through candidacy now, we always joke it's a it's a huge game of hoops that you have to kind of jump through mm-hmm. to become a to become a Methodist minister. But I've always said if you are if you're truly called, you're willing to jump through those hoops mm-hmm. because it does kind of it can help hopefully weed out those folks that may have a calling, but just not a calling to pastoral ministry. Mm -hmm. You know, they might have a different calling to something else. Um, Not to get too much into the cultic thing, but we were talking about this before we started recording. Um, Jim Jones was a United Methodist um, and tried to become a United Methodist pastor at one point. And because of the hoops that he had to jump through, thankfully he didn't. Yeah. unfortunately he started his own cult and did terrible things but like imagine what would have happened if he would have made it through right and been a pastor in a recognized denomination you know what kind of damage could he have not saying not to minimize the damage that he did at right. all right right but could have been so much you worse, know, sure. it could have been so much worse had um there not been protocols and hoops that he had to jump through sure well, I even think, and again, I, I don't want to be uh, only pejorative about traditions that aren't my own, uh, but I don't have a whole lot of good to say about this phenomenon. Um, in American Christianity, there are folks who are like the celebrity TV pastor or preacher who are pastors of super giant congregations that have their own TV channels and things like that. And sometimes will have their very own study Bibles with the pastor's written notes or things like that. And you can get the so-and-so's particular take with notes right there on the Bible's page that are clearly just this one person's take on things. And that can so quickly become like, I'm the only one with the right answer or right interpretation on this. Everybody else has had it wrong unless you got it out of my Bible. Um, and to me, like that feels like part of how denominations can be helpful is that kind of check on, well, hold on here. Let's remember, we're part of a longer conversation. Not everybody for the last 2000 years has agreed that that verse means what you say it means. In fact, there's a lot of, inter- and not to say that we never arrive at a particular interpretation of a particular passage, but at least to say, you're not the first person to have asked this question or come up with an answer. How are you in conversation with those who have gone before you? And at least part of what denominational structures do, because they, however new or old they are, somehow have ties to those who have gone before us is a way of reminding us we're not starting from scratch. And people who uh, think they found the most interesting insight today might discover, oh, somebody thought that 500 years ago, or somebody thought that a thousand years ago, or somebody took that to a crazy extreme, you know, 1200 years ago, and we ruled that out. Um, but what are the things that help guard against those kind of, again, sort of cult of personality kind of dangers. To me, it's having a structure of people who can say, no, we haven't decided that that's a deal breaker kind of an issue. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to counter that just slightly, Steve, because like I have on my shelves, a uh, Max Lucado study Bible. So it's got, you know, notes from Max Lucado, famous Christian author and everything. Those aren't necessarily a bad thing. I think when those become an issue is when that's the only text 
that you're constantly looking at. Sure, sure. And I guess it it just, you know, I I don't use it very often. Um, I think I have it probably more so for the translation of this and then necessarily that it's Max Lucado. Um, So like, yeah, I get where you're saying, you know, that can become that very cultish. And then like, if I don't agree with whatever, whoever wrote the notes for this Bible, then I'm wrong. Right. Um, But in some ways those can be helpful just to, get a fresh take of a passage so long as you're also looking at commentary from other folks yeah and i think that's well. that's that important and again like i i, I think uh, a wise and grounded pastor would be clear if they wrote something like that that yeah take take everything i say with a grain of salt read a bunch of other voices and here's here's what i think i have to contribute to the conversation my concern is without a structure like we've talked about with accountability you could have somebody who's prolific at writing stuff and say, and by the way, mine's the only one that's right. Again, wh- whether they yeah. say it out loud that way, or it's just presented like this is the right take, and you shouldn't b- even bother listening to other voices again. Um, so yeah, a someone uh, who is is wise and well grounded will know how to humbly say, "Here's what I think I have to offer to the conversation." And again, I I think that makes somebody's study notes in a study Bible an awful lot more just like here's a short commentary I've written and yeah. we packaged it with. Um, my concern is more like the 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 way that can even something like that that could be harmless can also get really easily abused mm-hmm. and oh, gotcha. and that in that in that regard the role of a denomination is basically the, the checks and balances or the guardrails to say like whoa 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 great that your pastor had insights remember they're not the only one who's ever had insights or great that they had insights but they seem to be saying that this is a stand or fall issue when it turns out we as a tradition have said nope here's the things we all are on same wavelength on here's the things that we're different on um and once you allow one per again i think this is sort of the danger we got to talking about last time with luther himself that there were times when luther could be sort of a no is exactly the only way that i see it is the way that it's acceptable when later lutheranism would go well maybe we don't all have to be like there are places in some of luther's mm-hmm. writing where he backs himself into a rhetorical corner and be like this is the hill i'm gonna die on and this is it and uh later lutherans would go like well luther kind of said it this way but mm, we're not gonna make that 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 strong in our confessions or something like that um yeah and uh again this is part of the difference between a movement and an institution hopefully an institution is is wise enough to go maybe we don't always have to be as extreme as this one particular voice um what we're sort of the general trajectory that we're headed down or something like that and that put up guardrails to avoid centering on somebody else other than jesus and again i think that may be it is that what's the test what whether those voices that have things to offer keep pointing us back to jesus and saying hold on hold hold what i have to say up against jesus if it doesn't if it doesn't pass the jesus test feel free to ignore me and luther at his best uh could say things you know like you know show me in scripture where i'm wrong and i'll be happy to recognize where i'm wrong here um that kind of ability to check ourselves is important and denominations at their best can offer that kind of a check and balance against the temptation for the local pastor to think I'm the only one who's got the answers. And again, if, if your job regularly means you're the only person in your congregation in that leadership role, it's really easy to slide into. I'm the only one with the right answers. Other things we think we need to say about how this particular rule of denominational structures can be a positive. Now for this particular part of denomination, like I think that there's lots of positives of belonging to a denomination outside of the training and um, getting pastors and really training any leaders. Yeah. Um, 
And, and there are certainly places where here be dragons, even in training leaders. Yeah. Um, but I think that having a denomination, especially for this one aspect, it is good and helpful. So you've helpfully pointed out, though, that we're, we're going to need to have more talk about other areas where these can be helpful. And also, like, let's be honest, there's also ways that these uh, structures can be big headaches and frustrations and heartbreaking and all that. So this is not the end of a conversation, but a place where uh, sticking a pin in things. And next time, we'll take a look at more dynamics of why, why we bother, why we continue in these, these hippopotamuses uh, that are church denominations. See you next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you all. Bye.